welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Good morning. Well, right now I am in the midst of sign-ups for our Hume Lake trip with our middle schoolers. And if you don't know what Hume Lake is, it's a week at a camp in the Kings Canyon National Forest where kids get to be as loud as they want, which is great. Um, They get to run and go off something called the blob. But what's so cool is they get to hear about God, and they get to hear in a real way from a speaker and in small groups with their peers. Um, It's what I say the best week of a kid's life. So if you haven't signed up for your kid, you should go ahead and do so. Still have a few spots left. Uh, But preparing for this sermon, I was thinking about Hume Lake and the signups, and it brought me back to a very specific moment of this last trip. And so at Hume Lake, in order for them to notify the whole camp that it's time for a meal, they ring this bell. And so that means that you have to go to the dining hall and wash your hands at this hand-washing station and then go inside. But at each week at Hume Lake, there's 500 campers at the middle school camp alone. So that's a really long line that these kids have to wait in. So there's three kinds of students. The first is they hear the bell and they race down to be the first in line. I think they think there's gonna run out of food or something, but they race down there because they really wanna be the first in line. And then the second group of kids, which is a lot of the girls in my cabins, they like to sleep in a little and they think the bell is just a suggestion. Like maybe I should make my way down to the dining hall at some point. And then the third group of kids, um, they're the ones who think that no matter what time they arrive to the dining hall, they can just cut in line with someone from our church. Yes, that's happened. And we discourage it. We discourage it a lot every meal. Um, But it's a losing battle. And if you've ever been a parent, you know that there are just some battles (laughs) that you will lose. And that is one of them. So there was this one night at camp, though, that they said they were going to do something different. And they told us leaders ahead of time, just go with the flow of what's going to happen. So they rang the bell. The kids rushed to the dining hall. And then they said, okay, before we go inside, we're going to have the ladies eat first. And then the guys are going to play a game. And then you'll switch. Okay, it's a fair. Like, everyone's going to get to eat. Everyone's going to get to play a game. It's all going to be fine. It's not going to be fine for middle school boys. Okay, so all of the girls, right, from any part in this line get to come to the front. If they were at the back, if they were at the middle, they get to go in front of the boys. And I don't know who was more shocked, the boys who were at the front of the line thinking they were going to eat first who are now at the back, or the girls who got there late because they were getting ready, who now get to eat first. And you would have thought that the camp had said, boys, no food for you tonight. (laughs) They lost it. Like, they, they lost it. There was a lot of, this is not fair, and this is so annoying. And my personal favorite, which I was just so surprised by, middle school boys, they said, this is sexist, Amanda. <laughs> I was like, okay, here we go. It was, it was so challenging for them to understand how or why this could have happened to them. They felt personally victimized. Right? <laughs> And I don't know if they're going to do it again this summer, so please pray for us. We're going June 30th to July 6th, and we'll see what happens. As we transition into this morning's biblical text, I want to warn you that it can be a little uncomfortable on the surface for many people. For some, it'll be the same response that a lot of those boys at camp had. This is so unfair. We, have, we all have stories in which we know someone that got something that, in our humble opinion, they didn't deserve. A job, a promotion, an acceptance to a college, a spot on a team, or a part in a play. 
And, and we worked so hard for something, and we thought we deserved it, but it didn't matter. They got it instead. It feels wrong. It feels unjust. And we often view that, the world through that lens of fairness rather than grace. But grace is what created this world, and by it, we are able to continue to exist. This morning, we'll explore how, how a grace-filled landowner demonstrates what the kingdom of heaven will be, but also what it should be here and now. But it's offensive. Grace is offensive. Because by its very nature, grace is not what we deserve. So my advice to us this morning is consider what we are to gain to learn from a God that is full of reckless grace in a world that often lacks any grace at all. In addition to the, this morning's text, I'm going to focus on a lot that comes from this book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes by Kenneth E. Bailey. And Kenneth Bailey is the same guy that Pastor Samuel used um, two weeks ago in his sermon. So if you loved his sermons, you know that it's going to be good. I recommend you get this book. Um, if you've ever tried to understand a more biblical context in which the scriptures were written, um, this helps shift our lens from a Western lens that we read the Bible into uh, what I would say is a little more accurate um, reading of scripture. So I really recommend this book. Would you open up to Matthew 20, either on an app or a pew Bible? It's on page 825, um, or you could just listen along with me. So I'll give you a little context for the story this morning, is that at this point in Matthew, Jesus has already said some very shocking things. Right before this parable uh, we see that parents are bringing their children to Jesus, and the disciples automatically want to reject them. And Jesus says, no, that's who the kingdom of heaven belongs to. And then we see the rich young ruler, and he comes to Jesus, and he's looking for some consolation on the good and moral life that he's lived, hoping that that will ensure his ticket to heaven. But he ends up walking away because the price was too high to pay. And Jesus explains to the disciples, and this is what he says. He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter heaven. Whew, again, shocking the disciples. This morning, let us be people who welcome the shock of God as a way to propel us in our faith. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, a place to gather, a place to open your word. God, that it is not just words on a page of an old book, God, but it is a living, breathing word that speaks to our lives here today. Thank you for this gift of your scriptures. God, and I pray that we would engage our hearts and our minds this morning um, and be challenged by your word. Amen. So I'm going to start in verse 1, and we're going to work our way through the text, so you can go ahead and leave the Bible open, but we'll start in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Okay, so we have this master, or a landowner, and we're going to call him the big boss. So he needs some work to be done at his place, and first thing in the morning, he leaves his land and he goes out to look for workers. And just so we're clear, because first thing in the morning can mean different things to different people. For me, that's 9 a.m. For Ben Bransford, that's 11 a.m. For some of the teenagers, maybe the same. But this was 6 a.m. That's early for me. <laughs> 6 a.m. is really early. But at 6 a.m., he sets out to town. And there would have been this special part in the market where people would have gone if they were looking for work, day work, um, just hoping to be picked that day. Any kind of work 
just for one day to make some money. And this practice still occurs today. It occurs in Israel, it occurs in other countries, even in our own country and in our community. If you drive to Home Depot, you'll see guys standing there waiting to be hired for work, hoping to earn something for themselves or for their families. So it's in this kind of setting that our big boss meets his workers. He selects some men, and they set the terms of the agreement. And that's, that's really important, is that it's a day's work for a denarius. And that's standard pay, like average amount. And they shake on it, and that's the agreement they're hold to, holding to. All right, verse 3. And going out about the third day, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing and said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. So halfway through the morning, for whatever reason, this owner returns to the market and he sees people still unemployed, standing and waiting in the same place. So the master makes another selection, but... Right? This time, it's a different agreement. He doesn't specify to an amount. He just says, whatever is right or just, I'll give you. So the men go off, most likely elated that they were hired and they're going to be able to take some money home that day and they don't have to endure the embarrassment of standing in the village market before everyone waiting for work. They go trusting in this master, trusting that he will keep his word to give them whatever is right but probably not the same as those first, first like, people hired, right? And three more times, he goes out himself. He doesn't send somebody else. The master, the owner, chooses to go himself three more times. Why? Why does he keep going back? Maybe it's because his driving force wasn't about getting the work done faster or more efficiently. Maybe it was because he had compassion, and in this case, it was for the unemployed. This is what I'm going to call the wave of grace part one. And so at 6 a.m., we see, he sees so many hopeful workers. And maybe he wanted to know what had happened to the rest of them. And he hopes that they had been hired too. But when he returns back every three hours, he finds them standing all day long. They never gave up their desire to work or their determination to find work. So the big boss decides to give them the one thing they desperately want, and that's a job. He could have given them money. He could have said, here's some money, get your family some food for the day. But instead, he decides to restore their dignity and their self-worth. He offers them a hand up and not a handout. Are you starting to see the parallels between this landowner and our God? Well, who is this last group of workers who would stand all day long waiting for work? So far in the text, nothing suggests that they're lazy or that they're irresponsible. In fact, it was the opposite. They're waiting. They stood. They didn't quit. They wanted to work. Who would do that? Who would wait all day long for work only to be hired when there are literally no other people to choose from? In Jesus' time, it would have been the weak, the sick, the disabled, maybe even the elderly, those with a bad reputation, but in our current context, it also would have looked like people who have college degrees and have a ton of student loans and just can't get hired in their fields. It would have looked like veterans who served our country yet can't find a job. It would have looked like immigrants and refugees, the people who are overlooked but who were there from the beginning and just didn't get the first round picks. 
Pause and think about the kinds of people that are in need of whatever is right, who need compassion the most. This is a story, this is a parable about people in need and a master who meets those people with genuine and uninhibited compassion. The same is true about the God we worship. He desires to meet the deep needs of his children with his compassionate heart. When I first started volunteering with Young Life in college, I thought it was really weird. I grew up in church, and I actually grew up in this church, and I had this idea in my head, and it wasn't anything anybody here taught me. It was just something I thought. I thought that if you wanted to learn about who God is, um, you showed up to church. You would fill the pews, or you showed up to youth group. But the responsibility was on them. If they wanted to hear about God, they filled this place. And so I got involved with Young Life, and they taught me that it actually wasn't that way, that we would go to where the kids are, that, that we would go to sporting events and hang out with kids who would never, ever set foot in a church. And I remember thinking, as an 18-year-old, I pulled up to Benita High School on a Friday night for a football game, and I made my way through the student section to the middle of the student section, and I remember thinking, these kids are my age. This is so weird. This is so weird. Why am I here? They want nothing to do with God. Why did I give up my Friday night to be at a high school football game? Young Life has this tagline that I've now adopted into my philosophy of ministry, and it says, um, therefore, reaching the furthest kid out. So the vision is to reach the furthest kid from the gospel and from the church, the least likely to have heard the gospel, the least likely to have ever been in church or ever read the Bible. The mission field is going to where the kids actually are, not just waiting for them to come to us. So that's why over the past three years, I've actually coached two sports that I've never actually played. (laughs) Um, But I choose to go where they are, and I spend time with the least likely kids in their environment. But this is a a philosophy that our whole student ministries at this church has adopted, and, and it sometimes surprises people. When I tell adults that a good portion of our youth group are, are kids whose parents don't attend this church or really any church, um, I'm often met with a lot of shock. But the same goes for our students. Um, students are often surprised that the kid in their math class, who to them resembles Jesus in no way, is also going on houseboats and is on their boat. <laughs> uh, to me, these are the furthest people out, the ones who Others would think are the the last person to become a follower of Jesus, the last to be picked. These are the ones who need compassion the most. Be encouraged that we, we serve a God that sees these people, and he meets them with compassion and extends his grace to them, but be challenged also by the fact that we too must open our eyes and see them and respond to them with the same compassion and grace that our God has given us. We're continuing in verse 8. It says, And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the first up to the last. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. When I read this, I think it didn't have to happen this way, right? The first people that were hired could have been the first people paid, 
received their amount, and then the last people hired could have just been amazed that they too received a full day's work and everyone would have gone home happy, right? And then that would be not really a parable, I guess. But <laughs> so there's a reason why it happens this way. Sometimes God brings us, brings to our attention and allows us to witness his grace because he knows it's going to change us from the inside out in ways that wouldn't happen if we didn't get to see it for ourselves. Sometimes we need to be front seat and witness the danger of grace in order to fully comprehend what we have received and what we should be praying that others are receiving as well. And so here begins this second wave of grace. To our market-driven minds, we want to shout along with the 12-hour workers, no fair, no fair. But is it really? Because they received exactly what was promised to them. These aren't the cries of the underpaid or the cheated. It's the resentment of those who feel that they have earned their way to more. This complaint stems from the justly paid who can't tolerate the generosity of grace. I'll say it again. It's not about being underpaid. okay? It's, it's about the difficulty of tolerating the magnitude of God's grace. And can't you just see right here in this moment the elder brother from the story of the, the parable of the prodigal son shining through? When faced with grace freely given to the prodigal son and the one-hour worker, the elder brother and the 12-hour workers are saying, how dare you make them equal to us? We're so different. My brother is irresponsible, and these unemployable people couldn't get hired until later in the day. Well, we, we worked so hard, and we were here all day. This is a story about value. It's not about unjust payments. It's not about being cheated out of their original agreement. It's about comparing their worth as human beings. The only thing the generous and compassionate master is guilty of is hiring a group of people that no one else would hire, honoring their value and worth as humans, and in turn denying a sense of entitlement and superiority to the full-day workers. If you were to quickly skim through the Gospels, you would notice that God loves to show uncommon compassion to unlikely people, especially those who lack a high place in society. He adds value where there is neglect. He brings worth where there has been rejection. This parable is about two things. It's about the magnitude of grace we receive and don't deserve, and it's about the importance of us extending that grace to everyone, including the least deserving. Verse 13. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose, what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? I don't love confrontation. I don't know if anybody here does, but I love when people handle it well. And I think that this landowner handled it well. He doesn't, he insists, right, that he didn't cheat anybody. He's honest. In fact, in worldly terms, he was the only one that was cheated. He lost money for himself and for his business. And so for a moment, take the finances out of the equation and replace it with love and mercy and justice, and compassion, and grace. And hear verse 14 and 15 again, but imagine that God is saying this. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? 
As one translator, uh, he comments, um, a, a commenter, excuse me, translates this master's speech, and he says, why are you jealous of them and angry at me? You must understand that I am not only just, I am also merciful and compassionate, because mercy and compassion are a part of justice. You see, God's greatest gifts, simply because they are God's, are distributed, not because they're earned, but because he's gracious. In the kingdom of God, the driving force isn't merit or ability, it's grace. The master's speech ends right here in verse uh, 15, and it abruptly stops. And so we don't know what happens to the 12-hour workers. Do they take their pay and leave? And we don't know if the one-hour workers, how their lives were changed by this blessing. And I think it matters that we don't know, because it shows us that we can't control or measure what someone does with the grace that's given to them. We don't get to decide someone's life choices after God's grace is extended to them. And I also think we're not told their responses because it leaves room for us to respond, to put ourselves in the story and finish the actions. We're placed on the stage and we're forced to finish the story in the grit of our own lives. If you were one of these workers who started at sunrise, how would you respond? Lastly, verse 16 says, so the last will be first and the first last. This final piece of wisdom that Jesus includes shouldn't come as a surprise. If you still have your Bibles open, you'll see um, chapter 19, verse 30 says, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. So 1930 and 2016, they sandwich our parable, and they just give away the heart of what Jesus is trying to communicate. It can be likened to the parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15, which says, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The last is the lost who will arrive home and they'll be celebrated over. And the first and the righteous must make room in order to elevate those in need. We need to ask ourselves, am I the righteous first, unable to comprehend the depths of God's grace? Or am I the lost last, needing to feel valued by God? Or, depending on, on the season of life you're in, am I both? Other parables we see in scripture are directed at the Pharisees, who, who were unable to accept that God, that Jesus would include people who hadn't followed the law all of their lives. But this parable we see is directed right at the, at the disciples, the disciples who had followed Jesus from the onset of his ministry and yet resented Jesus because he was welcoming people who were following him towards the end. This parable is for the church. It's for any of us who have stood close to Jesus for any amount of time and begun to look questionably upon people we see in need and those that seem left behind yet are here to receive the same thing you and I are. I remember I was discipling some girls, and their faith was growing. And it seemed that the deeper that their faith grew, the more frustrated they were at youth group. And then I figured out why. It was because of those they called hypocrites that kept coming to youth group. These girls would see people acting at school one way, and then they would show up to church and see those same people acting a completely different way. And they couldn't 
make sense of it. Their comparison and their bitterness got the best of them. Now, mind you, I'm referring to the kids who haven't made a profession of faith yet or the kids who are very early on in in their faith. These girls couldn't understand why I or Luke or any of the other leaders would show them the same love we were showing everyone else. They wanted to tell me, don't you know who that is? Don't you know what they do when they're not at youth group? And I say, yes, I know exactly who that is. And I know that Jesus is bigger than any mistake they've ever made. The same God that is in you and in me, that has redeemed your life and shown you more grace than you've ever known, is the same God who desires to give that grace to the students who some say haven't earned it yet, or to your coworker that opposes Christianity, or the homeless man or woman who can't find a job yet. This parable reveals that the gospel is good news for all people. It's about a generous and selfless God who has the authority and the power to use his grace however and to whomever he chooses. I know some of your stories in this room, and I know that some of you are the least likely to be here. Yet, you are here, and praise God for that. The band can come on up, and I'm going to close with this. I'll end with this quote, and so if you didn't hear anything else I said, it's okay. Just hear this. I didn't say it, but somebody else did. In the gospel, salvation through Christ is open to both Simeon, who held the baby Jesus in the temple at the beginning of his life, and to the thief who believed at its end. He, Jesus, opens it to the believer who dies today, even as he opened it to Abraham, the friend of God. Who cares when? We should really only be caring about how. And that's through the power of the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank God that that he offers grace and that we don't have to earn it and that the kingdom of God runs on endless and reckless grace. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we are humbled by your grace, Lord, that sometimes it takes a reminder of this amazing and powerful grace you've bestowed upon us um, to knock us to our, our knees, God, and thank you and praise you for that. And I pray that you would bring us now to our feet as we would walk out these doors in a little bit and extend that grace to others. God, that you would position to receive your grace but also administer your grace to the least likely and to those who need it most. God, we pray for this offering as you would uh, use it to bless not only our church, but the community around us. God, that our time, talents, and treasures would not just be for us, God, but that it would be yours, that we would be returning back to you all the blessings you've given to us. In your name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.